Sarah Penner's debut novel, The Lost Apothecary, shot to the top of the New York Times bestseller list in its first week, a remarkable achievement for a first-time author. Overnight, it became one of the most anticipated books of 2021. And Nella, her central character, is a skilled healer who uses poison for dark purposes. Welcome to the joys of binge reading the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and in Binge Reading today Sarah talks about writing a book that stands out from all the others. How Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic Creativity book got her started and making a female serial killer a sympathetic lead. But before we get to Sarah, I've got exciting news to share. I've been posting these author interviews weekly since September 2017. There are now about 170 binge reading chats where top authors talk about their books online. That's going to continue, no problem. We've got more authors than we could ever cover in a lifetime. From next month, June 1, we're expanding the show to give listeners who love what we do a chance to subscribe to Binge Reading on Patreon in return for extra monthly bonus content and a wealth of other benefits that we're still working out, to be honest. Joining Patreon gives you a chance to find even more great books you won't want to put down, as well as get to know your favourite authors better and help our team create more fantastic content. For the cost of a cup of coffee a month, you'll get access to the Binge Reading Live community where you can get tips for more great books from other dedicated bookaholics as well as make suggestions for who you'd like to interview next. To find out more about Binge Reading on Patreon, head off to our joysofbingereading.com homepage. We've put more information about it all up there. But now, here's Sarah. Hello there, Sarah, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much, Jenny, for having me. I'm thrilled to be here talking with you today. The Lost Apothecary, Sarah, has had remarkable success as a debut novel. Your protagonist is not necessarily a person readers would automatically warm to because she's a female serial killer. (laughs) Did you feel that you were taking a risk by choosing her as a central character? So that you you make a good point. And when I began writing the story, I knew that I wanted Nella, the apothecary, to be somewhat morally gray. And of course, the book opens with her in her hidden apothecary shop, and it's very dark and has sort of a sinister feeling. And the reader quickly learns on page one that the apothecary is pulling together a poison. She's She's planning to poison someone for the purpose of killing them. And so I knew from the very early pages of the book that I was going to have to help the reader understand why she was doing this and also show a softer side to the apothecary. And so what I really aimed to do over the course of the novel is help the reader understand why the apothecary was so vengeful and the wounds emotionally that she had from her own betrayals in her life. But even more important than that, 
how she was setting out to help women who had also been betrayed and felt that they had no other resources available to them. So in a way, the motive behind her her killing is actually somewhat pure and good. I think that you quickly see that when Eliza, her 12-year-old customer who arrives at the shop, we learn why Eliza is purchasing poison from the apothecary. And I hope that at that point, the reader is able to see the perspective of, again, another victim and how they're using this, this shop of poisons as kind of a last resort. And it makes it feel less like murder at that point and more like a way out of a bad situation. Yes, she's a serial killer with principle in the sense that she secretly dispenses poisons to liberate women from men who have wronged or harmed or abused them. She she has draws the line at ever poisoning another woman. I just wondered if you had any conflict even about the idea of seeming to endorse revenge killings. Gosh, did I have conflict about it? You know, I I think that part of the part of the intrigue about fiction is for both the author and the reader is that we're able to suspend a few of our own principles. And of course, we know on the surface, whether it's today or whether it's 200 years ago, no matter where we live, whether it's London or the States, we know that killing is wrong, but, and that, that killing someone will get you arrested and thrown in jail for the rest of your life. But when you have a fictional story, you really have the opportunity to play with that vengeance and explore maybe a a different moral perspective. And so I did not really have any internal conflict or principles against this storyline because I knew it was fictional. But interestingly, in some of my research, which I'm sure we'll cover at some point, I did read countless cases about real poisoning homicides in the 18th and 19th century in Britain. And that was actually very enlightening and, if anything, impacted me a fair bit because that's not fiction. Those were real cases, and I was able to see how these people were poisoning the the victims in their lives. So it was an interesting experience, but knowing that the book is fiction, I, I never encountered deep internal conflict that prevented me from moving forward. Backing up a little bit, how ever did you initially conceive of this character as the topic for your very first novel? Yes. So I've always had somewhat of a passing interest in herbs and earth sciences. I actually, when I began at university many years ago, I was a a pre-med. I wanted to be a doctor, but I got a C in chemistry and quickly realized that that wasn't the right path for me. But I've always had a little bit of an interest in just medical sciences and earth sciences. And I also, when when I approached this story premise, before I even wrote down the first word on the first page, I was thinking through what areas in commercial historical fiction have not been tapped. And it dawned on me as I was sort of toying around with this idea of an apothecary, I couldn't really name any books or find any any popular books that featured apothecaries, much less apothecaries who sold poisons to other women. And so the idea very quickly took shape in my mind 
that I wanted this sinister woman who worked in a back alleyway, uh, who I wanted it to be a feminist story. So I wanted this apothecary to serve only women. And really once I had those basic pillars of the story, it took shape quite easily in my mind. And sure enough, I mean, what I've heard from readers in the industry, they they all have said the story idea is so original. There, There's not anything else like this out on bookshelves. And I kind of nod because that that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to write something really fresh and original. Fantastic. And it certainly paid off because you had a dream debut. The, the book has been named things like most anticipated for 2021 by Opera's magazine. It's been picked up by many prominent publications and the CNN. Tell us a little bit about how that launch was. Did that just feel overwhelming? It, it's been quite a whirlwind. So there was a lot of buzz and publicity before the book even came out. And of course, I was thrilled about that. But I also felt like there was some pressure because I really did not want the book to come out and be a flop because I knew that my publisher had put so much time and energy and publicity dollars behind the book. So when I, that very first week, when I got the call from my editor that it was an instant New York Times bestseller, I really felt a wave of elation, but also relief that after all of these months of work and hype and publicity, we had at last accomplished the, the, that we had, we had, conquered our Everest. This is this is the mountain we wanted to climb and we had done it. And so I felt just this profound relief. And then when the book made the New York Times list the second week and the third week and the fourth week, at this, at this point, it's all just like icing on the cake. And I kind of shake my head in disbelief on Wednesdays when that list comes out because I can't believe how many people are talking about the book. And, you know, we all know that the number one thing that sells books is word of mouth. And there have been so many pictures and wonderful reviews on Instagram and book clubs uh, that have chosen this as their selection. And that's all feeding the word of mouth. And you really can't buy that. And a publisher can't, there's no formula for a publisher to do that to the best of their ability. It really just relies on readers. And so I, I've i been just amazed and I wake up many mornings pinching myself because I'm so thrilled with the reception. That's fantastic. Look, you referred to the research that went into it. Tell us a little bit about those real cases that you were, were listening to and what and, and getting in touch yes. with. Yes. So, you know, I, as a historical fiction author, one of the very first things I do when I'm approaching a new story idea and then throughout the drafting of the story as well is I'm constantly referencing a stack of key resources that I have deemed appropriate for that project. So when I was writing and, and researching The Lost Apothecary, I was looking at several books about real poisoning cases, and I read those to see what poisons people were using, what years they occurred, what happened to them, whether they were charged and, and hung or thrown in jail or what the repercussions were. 
So I had these, these books with these real life cases in the 18th or in the 1800s and the 1900s. And then I also had a fairly robust stack of books and resources on poisons, many of which are plant-based. So on my bookshelf now, if I could show it to you, there are some really interesting guides on toxic plants that one might have in their own garden or that you may find uh, in nature. And then I also did some research on not plant-based poisons, but different animal toxins. So the, the beetle in the story, which plays a pivotal role that I won't share because I don't want to give away any spoilers. I learned that it is absolutely true that many species of beetles have a very toxic, you know, kind of excrement in their bodies. And so I learned all of this interesting information. Then I also researched, you know, if you take away the poisonous piece, I also just researched a medical science in the 18th century, which looks so much different than it does today. It was not advanced. Uh, it was it was very kind of ancient and home-based remedies, if you will. And so I did a lot of research on just what would a day in the life of an apothecary look like, which an apothecary is really a predecessor to a modern day pharmacist. So I wanted to know what herbs and remedies would line the shelves of their shop. How many patients were they seeing a day? How, what tools would they use to kind of blend their tinctures and their medicines? So I, I really tried to take a broad look at many different areas of research that helped inform me in the early drafting of the story. Fantastic. And what about the motivation for the women side of it? Were there any cases that you could find where you had any insight into the motivation of women who might have poisoned people in the 18th century? So I will say that in the in the author's note or the historical note at the back of the book, I do share that data shows us in the late 18th century, the majority of poisoning homicides were were done by women. So wives, mothers, servants, jilted lovers, etc. So that the data is definitely there, but interestingly, a lot of the cases that I read were poisons carried out by men. And I don't know if that just is because men are more likely to get their names in in history books, which really kind of proves one of the key points in my story. But interestingly, after the book was well underway, I think I was actually in revisions with my editor. So the book was basically written. Several people reached out to me with this really interesting uh, story about a female poisoner in Italy. I believe she lived and worked in Rome. And this was long before the lost apothecary took place. I want to say this was the, the 16th or 17th century but her name was Julia Tofana, and she did indeed have a single mixture, uh, and she was not an apothecary. I think she was like a perfumist or something like that, but she had this single mixture that was very potent, very toxic, and she would sell it to women who wanted to kill their husbands. So that's been interesting learning about her after having written the book. Her business model was was fairly different. And again, she was not an apothecary. But to answer your question, the the business of killing men and, and dispensing this poison to women was very much the same. 
Fantastic. You've got also that other aspect in the book of the present day. It, it is very cleverly done, the time slip aspect, where you have your contemporary day heroine gradually discovering the about more and more facts about the existence of this apothecary. And that partly starts because she goes as a tourist and does a little tourist ex- expedition to the Thames River and finds an antique file of just an empty vial in the mud. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is called mudlarking. And I gather that you had a little bit of a personal connection with mudlarking as well. Yes. So mudlarking has been around for hundreds of years, but has only recently had a bit of a resurgence with hobbyists in London. And so you really can go mudlarking anywhere. And essentially it means scrounging around along a riverbed or a body of water for interesting or valuable artifacts. And so the River Thames, which of course runs straight through London and has many thousands of years of history kind of buried in the silt and in the mud, just waiting for the tide to turn it over. River Th- the River Thames is a very popular place for mudlarkers. And so One of the things that I really wanted to do when I started the story is I did not want Caroline to stumble on a diary or a book or something that that has been done in time slip historical fiction. I wanted her to find something really unique and different. And around the same time I was drafting the story, I had received a book from my mother-in-law with different pictures of things that this mudlarker had found along the River Thames. And one of them was an apothecary jar. And so I realized right then and there that that was going to be the first thing that Caroline found. She was going to go mudlarking and find this apothecary vial. And that was going to set her on her quest. And I did actually myself go mudlarking in July of 2019, long before lockdowns. And I, I went down to the river three separate times and you have to secure a permit from the Port of London Authority uh, because there are so many mudlarkers now that the police do make sure you have paid your fee and you have your permit. And I found all sorts of cool things, mostly pottery. I found a clay pipe, just just little different, interesting things. Nothing of great value to anyone else, but to me, they're very special. And I brought them home with me. That's You're allowed to do that. Whatever you find, you get to keep. And it's so special now. And I often show these little fragments of pottery on different book clubs or virtual events because it's it's very much a show and tell. And many of the little pieces that I have are, you can tell by the markings and the type of paint used that they are 18th century. And so it's very cool to think that, you know, I just went down there and the tide turned these things over and this is what I found. So I have told everybody that once lockdowns are lifted, I if anyone's traveling over to London and doesn't want to go to a museum, I highly recommend just finding the, the steps, going down to the river and go see what you might find. It's fantastic, yeah. And you also mean, mention in the notes at the back of the book that forensic analysis in this time was obviously not nearly as good as it is today, but it, it, it made great steps forward in the early 19th century but in this later part of the century of the 18th century it was still in its its very much beginning stages so that it was much harder to pin down 
whether somebody had been poisoned in those days. So that made it slightly easier for people to get away with poisoning one another, didn't it? Yes, absolutely. So that was a very serendipitous discovery that I made during my research because I I've always been interested in Georgian London. And when we talk about Georgian London and in the context of my story, it's late 18th century. And so I already kind of felt like I wanted to set the story in the late 1700s. Again, you don't see a lot of that in commercial fiction. And I'm very attracted to stories that and in eras and places that haven't really been fleshed out much in commercial fiction. And so I felt like that was an untapped era with a lot of interesting things happening already. And then when I discovered what you just referenced, that forensic toxicology did not exist until the mid-1800s, I realized that the 1790s was a perfect time to set this story because it merged both my own interests in Georgian London with also the time frame that such an apothecary killer could have actually gotten away with her sinister behavior. And it's so fascinating if you look at bills of mortality from the late 1700s, which basically are records or inventory of how of, of what's causing people to die, whether it's illness or what have you, you see almost no cases of poisoning homicide because they didn't have the ways, they didn't have a manner to detect it. So they couldn't deduce that that was how someone died. But I'm absolutely confident, as I mentioned in the historical note, that people were being killed every day by poisons. And so I think a lot of murders probably went undetected. And so when you get into the mid-1800s, you see all of a sudden these records of poisoning deaths just skyrocket because suddenly autopsies and coroners were able to detect that this had been happening. Yes. And of course, when we carry it through to the present day, obviously, we're much more aware of the possibility of foul play now so that our contemporary protagonist has a little bit of difficulty because yes. she seems to be too interested in poisons. We won't do any spoilers here, but there is a definite link from the late 18th century through to the 2021st century with the way that you let it unfold, which is fascinating reading. Yeah, yes, exactly. So so much of the book and one of the one of the fun things for an author about telling a story in two timelines is you get to do a fair amount of compare and contrast. And one of the things that is very different between the two timelines is what police and detectives are able to detect. And if someone gets sick and it appears to be foul play, the approaches were going to be very differently present day versus 1791. And as you just said, we get to really see how that impacted Caroline and part of her narrative and and when the story really kicks up for her. Yes, yes. Look, I, I know online from what I've seen you've written that you began this journey with an Elizabeth Gilbert creativity workshop. Now, Elizabeth, as I'm sure most listeners know, is famous for her Eat, Pray, Love book that became uh, uh, such a well-known film. But she did do a book on creativity called The Big Magic. And you say that this book was a game changer for you. Tell us about that, that experience. Yeah. So really the key premise of Big Magic is about fear and how creative people, whether writers or pianists or painters or what have you, 
how you deal with fear. And I think uh, fear is also, when I say that, I'm also using that interchangeably with rejection. So that's every artist's greatest fear is rejection. And so the whole book is about how you have to just create while sitting next to fear. And she even pretends that you as an author are in a car traveling down a road And fear is like this person sitting in the passenger seat. And you really just have to get comfortable with that person sitting next to you for the entirety of your creative life and career. And so it was a really enlightening story for me. But what was even more enlightening was that she just happened to be in the city where I was living at the time, which is Wichita, Kansas, smack dab in the middle of the United States. And she was on tour and she, uh, I had the opportunity to go see, listen to her talk about big magic. And she asked the audience a rhetorical question, which basically uh, she was asking us to think about our dreams and, and what sort of things we want to accomplish or pursue that we had not yet taken steps towards because of fear. And she said something to the effect of, if I returned one year from now, would you want to be sitting in the same chair, still scared and still having not taken any steps towards that dream? And if the answer to that is no, then you need to take that first step sooner rather than later. And it was just the right question at the right time for me. And really resonated with me. And within a couple of weeks, I had enrolled in my first writing class. I had started dabbling with a new story idea. And I always think back to that discussion and just how important and poignant that was for me at the time. And it's funny because I've tried many times to thank her. She's almost impossible to get a hold of because she's so famous at this point. But I I sent a handwritten letter to my publisher and they were going to try and get it over to her. But I think she's, it's like living in a steel box. It's very difficult to get anything through to her, but that's perfectly fine. So long as I can, you know, just inside be grateful for what she did. And I, I always will be. And hopefully someday I'll get the chance to tell her what that conversation did for me. That's fantastic. That's an invitation to someone to to start a panel with both of you on it sometime, which would be great. <laughs> oh, I would absolutely. That'd be a dream. Yes. Look, um, that leads us very nicely into looking a little bit wider away from the specific book to telling us a bit about your life before that moment. What was it that led you in the beginning to, to sit in that workshop or to have the interest to do that? What had led up to that? What were you doing in those early years? Yes. So I worked in finance for 13 years. I graduated from university with a degree in finance, immediately went to work uh, in the field. And in fact, I just this month resigned from my corporate job to work or to write full time. But when I went to that, when I went to that session with Elizabeth Gilbert, I was very much in the middle of my finance tenure. And the reason why I was there was because I've always, even since childhood, I've had an interest in language and writing. And when I was younger, that manifested as, you know, I would journal. So I would take this little leather journal out to my backyard and I would describe the trees and the birds and the colors. And I actually still have that journal. And sometimes I 
look back in it and I kind of smile at my old childhood self because the descriptions are pretty terrible. But that's that's the point was I was playing with words and I was showing an early interest in words. And then through high school and college, I actually dabbled a little bit in some poetry, which was again pretty terrible because it's it was really just verses of of in lines of words. I mean, it wasn't like formal poetry. I didn't have these beautiful stanzas and perfect formation. But again, I I just maintained this interest in expression through language and. Then in my late 20s, which was around the time I went to this Liz Gilbert presentation, I just decided that I was up for the challenge of of trying my hand at long-form fiction. And when I first, I I mentioned earlier that I enrolled in an online writing class, and that first class was actually nonfiction. And I've always been a huge reader of nonfiction and when I first wanted to write, you know, a longer project, I, I was going down that route. I thought that I would write perhaps some narrative nonfiction, but I quickly realized the problem with nonfiction is you, it has to be true. And you have these very black and white guidelines that you have to stay within, not to mention everything has to be meticulously researched and footnoted. And there are just so many rules and constraints in my opinion. And so I thought, well, what if I what if I wrote topics and eras and places that I love, but from a fictional perspective where I don't have to adhere to all of those rules? And so that was what led me down the path of writing historical fiction. And I actually The Lost Apothecary, while it's my debut and my first published story, it's not the first project that I worked on. So I did write another full-length book for The Lost Apothecary, but it was never agented. It was never published. No one has ever read it and nor will they ever read it. It was very much just how I learned to write a book. And so I can definitely say that now, you know, looking back and I've been writing seriously, I guess for it's about six years now, I have absolutely fulfilled this lifelong interest that I've had. I more than ever, I love expressing myself through words and language. And I, I find myself improving in many areas of it. So I think the interest has always been there, but for many years, you know, I had to pay my bills and finance was the way that I did that. So it's been interesting balancing both of those things. Yes. And so how did you do that? It's remarkable that you're working full-time and what I imagine was a pretty demanding job. How did you set your timetable to make the time to do it? That's a great question. So I'm a huge proponent and advocate of early morning efforts. And I think a lot of people have passions and they don't know how to fit them into their busy schedules. And what I always tell people is you have to wake up earlier. You're going to somewhere you're going to have to find the hours. So you're either going to have to not see your family and friends as much. You're going to not be able to cook dinners or go to the gym. You've got to do something. And so for me, that was waking up early. So before I started writing seriously, I would maybe wake up at seven each morning, but I started waking up at five and much of the lost apothecary was written between the hours of five and eight in the morning. So very much when everyone else is asleep, the house is dark. I'm I'm actually very creative in the mornings and I've always been a morning person. So it worked out really well to write my stories at that time of day. 
Fantastic. Look, this is the joys of binge reading. So we'd we'd like to get an idea of what you're reading now and if you've ever been a binge reader as such yourself. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I just finished yesterday, The Rose Code by Kate Quinn. And it's about three female code breakers in Bletchley Park in World War II. And I highly recommend it. It's fantastically researched historical fiction. And she, of course, is very well known in the historical fiction space. And as for a binge reader, you know, I I don't read as many books as I think a lot of readers do. I know some readers somehow manage to get through 100 or 200 books a year, and I get through about 30 to 40. But I like anybody. I go on fa- I go in phases. You know, I'll, I'll read a book in two days, and then maybe the next book I'll take two weeks on. So, but the, the Rose Code is what I just finished, and I would highly recommend it. Great, great. What's next for Sarah, the writer? Have you you already got a new project underway that you can talk about? I am working on my next project. And although I can't share specifics, what I can share is that so many of the elements that readers have loved about The Lost Apothecary, so the atmospheric historical setting, the brave rebellious women, the cliffhangers and twists, And then the speculative element, which in The Lost Apothecary was magical realism. All of those different elements, I can assure you that they will be in my next project and probably all of my future projects because those are the areas that I really lean to as a writer and the things that really fulfill me as I'm telling new stories. Is the the Apothecary book likely to be made into a film? Has it been already picked up by anybody? Uh, so that's another question that I unfortunately am not at liberty to answer, okay, okay, but yeah. I will I will <laughs> say that I cross my fingers every day. I would love to see it on the screen. So we'll just have to all wa- wait with bated breath on that one. Yeah, yeah, I can understand. There are things that you're not able to say. <laughs> Look, we love having the chance to put readers in touch with you, and I'm sure you like to hear from readers. How can they find you online, Sarah? Yes, I am not hard to find at all. So if I've my website is sarahpenner.com. If someone wants to send me a email or reach out or subscribe to my newsletter. And then I'm also on all social media. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, just search for Sarah Penner author and I'll pop right up. I have a YouTube channel with a handful of videos. If anybody is interested in looking through some rare books that I have in my personal library, or they want to learn more about mudlarking, all of those are on my YouTube channel, as well as a few other fun videos. So I'm definitely easy to find, and I would love to hear from readers. That's fantastic. And we will have links to those in the show notes for this episode. So anybody who's interested in looking into that further, if you go to the website where this is posted, there'll be a full transcript of the chat with links to all of the relevant details. Look, Sarah, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been wonderful to hear about this book and congratulations on such great success with your first published novel. Well, thank you so much, Jenny, for having me. This has been a really enjoyable talk and I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to reach out to your listeners. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. 
We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.